Hello, my friends. Today, I'm going to take you through two news stories about the banning of math from school as racist. You may think I'm kidding. I am not. I will actually take you through an Ontario court case that says math tests are racist and thus are against the Charter of Rights. Swear to God, I'll prove it to you. I'll read it to you from the court ruling, and I would like to invite you become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. You're not going to believe it. I want to show it to you. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com and click subscribe. Eight bucks a month. A bargain at twice the price. My video show every day plus weekly shows from Sheila, Andrew, and David. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, why are teachers' unions calling math racist? It's December 20th, and this is The Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I saw a few interesting headlines this morning in the Rebel News morning email. By the way, do you get that morning email? I think it's called Rebel Buzz. Every day, for free, just in your email box to start your day, we send you a list of stories that we're following. Not just our own stories, but other interesting things that we find from other media. Sometimes they're even in the mainstream media. We're not afraid to suggest any other news outlet, including competitors, if it's an interesting story. So I recommend you sign up. It's called Rebel Buzz. Um, here are two interesting stories that are related. The first is from Global News, who can be just awful. But uh, today they were interesting. Take a look at this story. BC teachers at loggerheads with First Nations leaders over standardized testing. So that's the headline, Global News. Now you might be thinking, okay, so First Nations people are arguing against standardized testing? that they feel high standards might discriminate against Indigenous kids who have a tough background and maybe they don't have a history of academic success in their families and, you know, maybe it's tough. Maybe that, that's what you might guess if you follow elite opinion, critical race theory, all, all sorts of woke folks saying standards are racist. But no, it's the opposite. That's why this story is interesting. These Indian bands are furious that the largely white teachers' union is dumbing down education, especially for Indigenous kids. The First Nations know that math and English are the tools to get ahead in the modern world. It's the woke teachers who want to teach feelings and grievances instead. I'll read to you from the story. A group of First Nations leaders in BC is calling out the BC Teachers Federation over the union's campaign against standardized testing for young students. The BCTF has long opposed the foundational skills assessment tests, which are administered annually to grade four and grade seven students and focus on literacy and numeracy. The union says the tests take away from classroom time, create anxiety for students, and don't result in better support for kids, and has encouraged parents to pull their children out of testing. <laughs> yeah. Or, just a guess, maybe standardized tests don't just show how which students aren't keeping up. They also show which teachers aren't keeping up, which teachers aren't doing a good job of teaching. I'll read some more. 
The scores are also used by the Fraser Institute to create an annual ranking of schools and regularly see private schools take the top slots. Oh, a lot of people hate that Fraser Institute list because if the tests are standardized, you can compare school to school. And then you can ask, hey, is, why is that school over there doing better than my kid's school? And there might be reasons why that is to be expected, but it starts with measuring. A lot of people would be against that, including bad principals who don't want to be compared to good principals. But at the end of the day, that information is useful to parents who might, I don't know, move their kids to a different school or at least complain to the bad school that they're in. First Nations leaders say the FSA program is a critical tool to assess how the education system is serving Indigenous children and to identify gaps and help allocate resources. Exactly. I mean, First Nations have a lot of problems that they obviously know about. But if you can't compare to the non-Indigenous schools, how do you know how far behind you are or if you're falling further behind or maybe if you're closing the gap? Why would you want to hide this information? That's all it is, information. Seven Indigenous leaders representing the First Nations Summit, Union of BC, Indian Chiefs and BC Assembly of First Nations penned a letter to BC Minister of Education Jennifer Whiteside last month expressing, quote, serious concerns about the ongoing targeted attack against the tests. Wow, that is tough talk. Here's an example of what I mean. There is a clear need for system-level data that provide evidence of how well the education sector is meeting the needs of specific populations, including our First Nations students. It's, I don't know how to say that word, Jody Wilson, Secretary-Treasurer of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, told Global News. By making systemic inequalities in our schools visible, data can lead to positive change. Wilson pointed to the 2019 FSA results, which found that just 27% of grade 7 students living on reserve were on track or extending numeracy expectations, compared to 67% of their non-Indigenous peers. So yeah, I, I don't think anyone is thinking that gap will close overnight. But hiding that gap? Well, who does that serve? Not the students or their parents, that's for sure. Why wouldn't you let them know that? Why are you covering that up? In a statement, the BC Teachers Federation agreed that data was needed to spot discrepancies in educational outcomes, but that the FSA tests and their use to rank schools serve to deepen inequities and pit public education against private schools. Yeah, you're right. And you know what? Why shouldn't Indigenous kids be able to go to the better schools? Did you know that on average, Indigenous kids actually have more money spent on education than kids off reserve. You certainly wouldn't know it. They could literally pay for the finest private schools in Canada if they had more school choice, but the system just absorbs the cash without results. No wonder the union wants to hide that. So that's one story. I thought it was very interesting. And now look at this story from across the country in Ontario. It's shocking, really, this anti-testing ideology is being promoted by the teachers' unions for all the above reasons. But in the Ontario case, they actually went to court to get judges to denounce standardized tests as illegal, <laughs> as racist. But get this, 
they're not even saying it's racist against students. They're saying it's racist towards teachers to have to know math. I am dead serious. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to read to you from the ruling. Here is the judgment, the court ruling from just last week. As you can see, it's from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, Divisional Court. Ontario teachers suing the government to ban math tests, in this case, for teachers. I'm going to read the first few paragraphs because it really explains it well. This is from the ruling. It reads like it's from The Onion or The Babylon Bee or some other satire site, but this is real people. This isn't some woke student paper in some gender studies class in college. This is what happens when those woke students graduate and become woke lawyers and then become woke judges. This is real. I'm going to read from the ruling. Paragraph one. The applicants seek judicial review of Ontario's Mathematics Proficiency Test, MPT, a standardized math test that all teacher candidates must pass to become certified as teachers in Ontario. The applicants, the, the union, seek a declaration that the MPT and the provisions requiring it violate Section 15 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Charter. The question on the application is whether the MPT, that's the math test, has a disproportionate adverse impact on entry to the teaching profession for racialized teacher candidates, and if so, whether it can be justified under Section 1 of the Charter. The evidence points to significant disparities in success rates of standardized testing based on race, including statistical evidence of racial disparities with respect to the MPT specifically. The deleterious effect on diversity is somewhat ameliorated by subsequent attempts available to retake the MPT. The MPT infringes Section 15 of the Charter and cannot be justified under Section 1. The respondent, that's the government, has not discharged its burden of showing that the MPT minimally impairs the rights of racialized teacher candidates. There were reasonably available alternatives to the MPT that on their face appear to be less impairing and at least as effective in achieving the goal of improving student achievement in math. These include requiring a minimum number of hours of math instruction or a math course in B.Ed. programs, requiring an undergraduate math course as an admission requirement for B.Ed. programs, or waiting to see the effects of the other parts of the respondents' four-year math strategy. They are literally arguing that it is against the charter to require teachers to do well at math, to take a math test before becoming a teacher. It apparently is fine under the Charter of Rights to force people to take an injection or lose their job, to lose their ability to go on airplanes or, or trains or to go to a restaurant. That's all fine by the Charter, but making math teachers know math, that's discrimination. Now, the government said that making math teachers learn math, you know, is, is good, but the court dismissed that. Here, I'm going to read from this ruling. I, I can't talk this ruling. Paragraph 44. The respondent, that's the government, proffered the expert evidence of Dr. Kajander, an expert in math pedagogy, who deposes that there is a correlation between teacher competence and confidence in math and student performance. You think? She testified on cross-examination that it is highly desirable to offer more mathematics content in a B.Ed. program because the additional support in terms of education and training is the real key to improving teachers' math competence. Dr. Kajander notes that not all universities had or have math courses 
She deposes that a key benefit of the MPT, that's the math test, is that it encourages math avoidant teacher candidates to sign up for a mathematics course, whereas they would simply avoid taking math courses altogether if there were not a bar at the end of the teacher's certification process. Could you imagine? Math avoidant teachers are going to be your kid's math teacher. It sounds sort of reasonable to make them take a math test, which is why the judges ignored it. They care more about being woke than learning math. I'm not kidding. That's what they say. The literature review found evidence that mandatory teacher competency testing impacts the teacher workforce pipeline. I would hope so. Workforce, teacher training, and the diversity of the teacher population. The literature review called, cited various studies conducted over the past 20 years, which found that mandatory standardized teacher testing has a, quote, serious impact on racial diversity within the teacher pool as follows. Multiple studies have found that the pass rates on common standardized teacher competency tests are significantly lower for people of color than for white applicants. Black and Latinx teacher candidates are much more likely to fail standardized teacher tests than their white peers. The U.S. Praxis test is, more than any other criterion, single-handedly reducing the number of minorities who enter the teaching profession. It goes on. You know it's bad when Canadian judges are using the word Latinx. You know that's not a real word, right? No, no real Latino uses that word. That, that's white leftists. That, that's not even a thing up here in Canada. And although I sympathize with people who don't know math, maybe they shouldn't be teachers then. But mainly, isn't it a bit racist to say that minorities aren't, aren't good at math? and to try and prove it mathematically and to make broad brush judgments about whole races, is, isn't, isn't that exactly what racists say? Racists on the other side, I mean. Like white supremacists who might say that minorities are dumb. It, it reminds me of this amazing Ryan Long sketch. Let me play just a minute of this, it's amazing. When me and Brad first met, I didn't think we'd get along, but turns out we kind of agree on everything. Your, Your racial, racial identity is the most important thing. thing. Everything should be looked at through the lens of race. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Damn. We both have a lot of opinions about people of color, even though we barely know any. I say colored people, but as long as we're classifying them, we both think minorities are a united group who think the same and act the same. And vote the same. You don't want to lose your black card. Sorry, I don't know. I just think we should roll, roll back, back discrimination laws so we can hire based on race again. Jinx, now you owe me a Coke. Hey, tell them what you told me yesterday. White actors should only do voices for white cartoon characters. Been saying that for years. Stick to your own. Us white people, we have so much privilege. I agree. It is a privilege to be white. Ask him about interracial dating. All I said is that black men who date white women have internalized racism, and white men that date ethnic women are fetishizing them. Guys against interracial dating now. Like, am I being pranked? Did Boomer put you up to this? Ugh, you know that taco place is white-owned? White people should be making white foods, like Kraft macaroni and cheese, no seasoning, not even salt. It's like he's a mind reader. I mean, I've been pushing for segregation forever, and my man does what? I created an improv comedy show exclusively for ethnic people. Guy segregates comedy on my birthday. White people need to stop wearing dreadlocks, and they need to stop appropriating black people's music. Shaved heads and country music, the way God intended. You know all white people are racist. I'm listening. Even if you have a black wife or a black friend group, you're still really racist. No, he just kicked a guy out of the organization for having a black girlfriend, but if you can promise me he's still really racist, we'll consider letting him back in. Black people should only shop at black businesses. 
I guess the only thing we really disagree about is I think white people are the root of all evil. But what did I tell you though, if we can narrow that down to a certain group of tiny-hatted white people, I think we can come to an understanding. Technically, I don't consider Jewish people white Neither because... do I. Yeah. Look, I, I appreciate the reference to Latino folks and to, and to black people. And I love people from every background. I think it's great that there are teachers from every background. But you notice they didn't mention Chinese Canadians or, or Indo-Canadians. And I don't want to focus on race, but I, I think that's what's going on here. I think this whole court case is racist, frankly. So not to stereotype, but, but aren't folks, you know, Chinese Canadians and Indo-Canadians, I don't want to stereotype. But in general, aren't they pretty good at math? I don't want to judge people based on race, but that that's sort of what the courts are doing. Um, let me read more here. This is from the ruling. The results of the first administration of the MPT, that's the math test, showed similar results. The pass rate of black teacher candidates is 70.3% as compared to the pass rate of white teacher candidates of 90.5%. The pass rate of indigenous teacher candidates was 71.43%. Put more starkly, the failure rate of black or indigenous teacher candidates to white teacher candidates was three to one. It is also worth noting that test takers were disproportionately white at 62.8% as compared to 5.9% of test takers who were black. Three, there were more than 10 times as many white test takers as black. Less than half a percent of test takers were indigenous. They, they are so obsessed with race, this is really, really gross. But what I take away from this is 70% of black teachers are passing the math test, and 90% of white teachers do too. And by the way, people can keep taking the tests again and again so they can improve. So most people of all races pass, if you, if you care about this. So this isn't really blocking a lot of people. And, and maybe they should get better at math if they want to teach math. And by the way, why don't they mention Chinese Canadian or Indo-Canadian? But the judges said, no, 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 no. Only 70% of blacks passing, got to be a racist test. I'll read one more paragraph. Perhaps more significantly, a larger proportion of candidates, 259, did not retake the test. There is no data about those candidates. There is no breakdown by racial group or otherwise. That leaves more than half of the teacher candidates who participated in the first administration of the math test unaccounted for, since there is over-representation in black and indigenous teacher candidates who were unsuccessful on their first attempt at the MPT, it is likely that a non-negligible proportion of the black and indigenous candidates are among the 259 who did not retake the test. So the court is just guessing here because they don't have the information, but they're looking at the world through their racist glasses. So some people chose not to take the math test again. Some teachers failed it and didn't want to take it again. They couldn't be bothered to study or try again. Maybe they found a better job, something else more suited to them something with less math in it than being, you know, a teacher, whatever. Uh, how is that bad? But this is just racist. What this court, a real court with real judges did, was say the hurt feelings of teachers who couldn't be bothered to study for a math test before they become teachers. Their hurt feelings comes ahead of the interests of students of any race. Which is more important? that students of any race, of every race, get good math instruction from a great teacher, including black students, by the way, 
Or is it more important that teachers get to feel good, even if they're crappy at math? They're awful teachers to children of every race, including black kids, but they feel good. You know, I'd like to ask some black moms and dads, some indigenous moms and dads, is it more important to you that your kids learn math from someone who's great at math, no matter what the race of the teacher is, or is it more important to you to have a very specific race of teacher teach your kid, even if they don't know math? Well, if those First Nations leaders in BC are anything to go by, I think parents of every race would choose the best teacher, and they are the real losers in this atrocious court case. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, we certainly talk about the pandemic a lot. I believe that the civil liberties crisis we're in is the story of the age. Uh, my monologue earlier about woke math, I guess that's a, that's a long-term story too. But we can't forget about the regular stuff, the folks that I guess matters to most people who are not as focused on politics as uh, we are. I mean, we talk about politics all day long. Most people are just out there trying to earn a living, pay the bills, get their kids through school, put bread on the table. And while we're focused on these political distractions, the civil liberties matter, the woke math in schools, well, the government is getting away with murder on the financial side. Here's the latest release by our friends at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. It's entitled Federal Minister's Priorities out of touch with financial reality. And it's written by Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who joins us now via Skype. Franco, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Sum up for me the main point of your new essay, Federal Minister's Priorities Out of Touch with Financial Reality. What are their priorities? Can you, <laughs> let's start with that. What is the top priority of the Liberal government? Can you discern it? Well, that's a great question. And it's certainly not getting a spending under control. I mean, Ottawa's priorities are completely divorced from financial reality and really the hardships facing so many Canadian families outside of Ottawa. Here's a perfect example. You have the finance minister, Christia Freeland, who is borrowing nearly half a billion dollars every single day. But Trudeau's mandate letter to the finance minister doesn't even mention the debt or the deficit. Now, that should be a pretty key priority for a finance minister, don't you think? So uh, us taxpayers, we're, we're just left here scratching our heads, wondering if anyone in the Trudeau government is even thinking about the $1 trillion debt. Yeah, and I read the other day, and I didn't take the time to check it, but I heard that her mandate letter, which is sort of like the to-do list or the, the short-term job description. So every cabinet minister gets a mandate letter. It's, hey, these are your priorities for this term in parliament. I understand the word inflation wasn't even in there. I, I saw that in the headline. I haven't put my eyes on the mandate letter myself. That's pretty incredible, but that's pretty telling. As Trudeau said, he doesn't even think about monetary policy, does he? <laughs> Well, well, Ezra, I mean, inflation may be the key economic issue facing Canadian families. It's certainly something that I'm worried about, right? You go fuel up your car, then you're worried about whether or not you have enough money to buy groceries. Um, but what we've seen here, we haven't seen a plan from Ottawa to, to provide a little bit more affordability. What we've seen from the Trudeau government is essentially the prime minister bragging about his future carbon tax hikes. We've already seen the carbon tax go up twice during the middle of the pandemic, and they're getting set to hand or to, to increase their carbon tax for a third time during the pandemic next year. Huh. You know, I forgot about that. I mean, the, the fact that they raised taxes 
during a pandemic is is crazy. You know, I, I heard a definition of inflation the other day, and I, I thought it was really useful. Inflation is a stealth tax, and here's why. I mean, if 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 you're earning a hundred bucks, but the cost of everything goes up, let's say five percent, you may not have had a pay cut. Like it's really <clears> a stealth pay cut because now it's like you only earned ninety five cents, and the more inflation goes up, if you're not getting more dollars to keep up, you're actually falling behind. I I really think that that's going to uh, shock Canadians who have, you know, really we've had a whole generation without high inflation. I think most people don't know how bad it, it could get because the last time was was really a generation ago, wasn't it? Well, well, Ezra, inflation is also taxation without legislation. Mm. And you have to you have to really wonder here if our members of parliament can even understand the real financial struggles facing Canadians. I mean, after all, our members of parliament have pocketed not one, but two pay raises during the pandemic, ranging from an extra sixty nine hundred bucks for your backbench member of parliament, all the way up to an extra thirteen thousand eight hundred dollars for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And you know what, Ezra, they're getting ready to gobble up their third pandemic pay raise come April 2022. So while you and yours have been struggling, the private sector, massive pay cuts, job losses, small businesses closing down, your supposed representative in Ottawa has been over there increasing their own pay. Huh. You know, I remember, uh, I mean, it, it's pretty gross. And if I recall, it's on April Fool's Day that they get those <laughs> pay raises, which is just so on the nose. It's It's too much. If this was a Hollywood script, uh, you know, the agent would say, no, nah, that's too, the, the studio hit. No, on April Fool's Day, that's, that's too much. But <laughs> to have their pay raise on April Fool's Day is quite something. Um, and, and every year it's just appalling. But let me ask you about something I saw in the United States, because for all of their flaws, they seem to have the checks and balances thing down pat. You know, Trudeau uses the phrase build back better. That's, and, uh, Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom says build back better. And of course, Joe Biden says build back better. It's I, I don't know where this slogan comes from. It's just another way of saying spend like you've never spent before. But the, the amazing thing, and I'd love for you to comment on this, is it looks like Biden's build back better multi-trillion dollar spending plan was stopped not by a Republican, but by a cautious, moderate Democrat from West Virginia named <clears throat> Joe Manchin, who simply said, no, nah, it's too much. It's too out of hand. I'm not in. And so a Democrat stopped the runaway train. And here we are in Canada with our Build Back Better overspending. Even though the Democrats won the presidential election, um, so they got a much higher percentage of the vote than Trudeau got, they have more checks and balances on their crazy spending than we do. I find that's a paradox. Well, Ezra, one of the key problems that we're facing here in Canada is that you do have the Trudeau government on this runaway spending train, but you also have Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole, who also wants to be on that runaway spending train. Remember, he just spent the last election telling voters that he wanted to outspend the last Liberal government budget by about $50 billion. So massive amounts of spending coming from even Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole. And, you know, inflation rising gas 
gas prices is really one of the key economic issues facing Canadian families. Well, what's Aaron O'Toole's plan to stop rising gas prices? Well, remember, he wants to put in a carbon tax of his own. So we're looking here wondering who in Ottawa is going to stick up for taxpayers and stop this one runaway train. You know what, Franco, I got to tell you, that's the favorite thing you've said in today's interview. It shows that you guys are truly nonpartisan, that you call it like you see it. I share your point of view. I'm frustrated by Aaron O'Toole. And to hear you guys, and you don't play favorites, you call it like you see it. If Even on occasion when there's been liberals and even new Democrats who've pumped the brakes on spending, I've heard you and your predecessors uh, give credit where it's due. So I'm really glad, and I hope you keep at it, because I don't think Trudeau can be changed on this. I think spending and borrowing and taxing are in his blood. He literally inherited it from his dad. But I think there's enough good backbenchers in the Conservative Party who are saying, what are we doing? Why are we in support of this carbon levy? Why are we spending? <laughs> I'm hoping that the likes of Pierre Polyev and some more grumbling backbenchers will get O'Toole to pump the brakes. Uh, do you talk to conservative MPs or senators on background? I mean, do you do you hear is there and, and and don't name any names if if it was a private conversation? But do you hear any rumbles in the conservative caucus that maybe they need to pull their party back from the red Tory bent it's on right now? Well, well, Ezra, I mean, we're, we're willing to talk to, to, to anyone in any party that's willing to save taxpayers some money and who's worried about the debt. And there's one thing that we've heard from cross-party aisles, or at least we think that every single party should be worried about. And Ezra, that's debt interest costs. We just got the recent budget update from Finance Minister Christia Freeland. And between now and 2027, only a few years, debt interest costs are going to cost taxpayers nearly $200 billion. And Ezra, as you know, that's nearly $200 billion that can't go to hire more nurses. Uh, it can't go to lower taxes because it's going to the bond fund managers on Bay Street. Yeah. And if interest rates go up, that's terrifying. Well, listen, Franco, great to see you again. You're one of the good guys. You don't take a dime in government money and it shows. Keep up the fight and we look forward to the next update from you. Hey, thanks for having me on today. All right. Anytime. There you have it. Franco Terrazano is one of the good guys with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I'd encourage you to check them out. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back. Your viewer feedback. Someone with the nickname Sacred Shaman says, mainstream media have to attack Rebel News because someone telling the truth shows them up. And more people are learning how corrupt the whole system is. David is one of the best reporters Rebel has, miles ahead of anyone in the mainstream media. Hope David is okay and hope Trudeau and his thugs are dealt with severely. I'm stunned at the silence of the world. One MP, John Williamson, spoke out. I'm grateful to him. Where's the other 337 MPs, including the other 118 conservatives? Silence. Why? That's gross. Where's the rest of the media? A couple of media, got to give them credit. Um, Colleen Nation and Richard Surrett, radio host in Mississauga, talked to us about it. The rest of the media were silent or cheered on Trudeau's thugs, like David Aiken and Terry Glavin. Very, very bad. Thomas Gordery says, Reading David Aiken's tweets, one might conclude that he believes the police would never detain anyone who isn't guilty. Strange comments. Is that guy a qualified journalist? If David Menzies were arrested or charged with something, 
then we could weigh, okay, did he resist arrest? I don't really think he did. I mean, he didn't fight back. He was, you know, he's a 59-year-old man with two fake hips being wrestled by three, you know, really fit uh, bodyguards. It wasn't resisting arrest, but there was no arrest. It's not an arrest. It's a mugging. There were no charges. There was no arrest. He was not detained. He was just beat up. So we can't set off what happened to him with some accusation against him. It was a hit and run. And those cowardly cops didn't even give their name. We're going to court. Go to standwithdavid.com if you want to read our lawsuit. It's only 10 pages long. Mona Hill says, David Aiken hasn't reported much of the news. He sends out birthday announcements and spews government talking points. He's not the same reporter he used to be. He's now a Trudeau cheerleader. I was trying to understand what was going on, and I think it came back to something that Mocha Bazirgan, our videographer, who I think was in BC, saw that a, an indigenous protest stopped Trudeau's tour bus for half an hour from going. And it was incredible, and Mocha showed it, and yet no one in the mainstream media reported it. David Aiken was in the bus that was stopped for half an hour. Now, do you think that if a conservative party bus was stopped for half an hour by indigenous folks who had a quarrel, you don't think that would be top of the news? But all the media party 86 that story because they're bought and paid for by Trudeau. I, you tell me a different reason. But Mocha was there and he ran the story and he proved David and the other media party journalists on the bus to be liars. And I think that from the election a few months ago, is what made David Aiken have it in for Rebel News. Because Mocha Bazirgan, our young 22-year-old videographer, showed the truth, and David Aiken, the senior reporter, was shown to be really a crony of Trudeau, and I think that embarrassed David, and he had his vengeance on David. But I don't think his revenge was successful. I think that he didn't make David Menzies look any worse. David Aiken made himself look worse. It's sort of like those... Westboro Baptist Church crazies who protest at funerals. You know, those guys who say God hates you or whatever at people's funerals. Super, super gross. David Aiken had that same vibe when he was cheering for a man being beaten. So gross. Well, let's stop with the grossness and let me leave you with a video of the day. This one by Tamara Ugolini. An update from Derek Sloan, former MP and now the new leader of an Ontario political party. Tamara will... Talk to him about that. So I'll leave you with that. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom. My party, uh, federal party, is still not approved by Elections Canada. So that's disappointing. But the fact is, is that there's always an opportunity to fight. And right now we have the next provincial election in the country is going to be in Ontario this coming June. And it's absolutely critical that we have... Uh, uh, you know, that we're fighting on that front. So, you know, I'm still uh, in favor of fighting for all Canadians. The battle is right here in Ontario right now, and that's why I'm here to do this. I'm Tamara Ugolini with Rebel News, here with former MP Derek Sloan. Um, Derek, my first question is a bit lengthy because I'm going to, to give our viewers a bit of background in terms of the political landscape and all of the transitions that have happened here. So it, I guess it started when you were first removed from Aaron O'Toole's Federal Conservative Caucus and under questionable circumstances. And in my opinion, um, 
it was a way for the brave and fearless Aaron O'Toole to remove any sort of strong opposition to the Uniparty. Mm-hmm. And so he used this this questionable donation and circumstance as justification to remove you from his caucus. Then you started the federal party uh, True North. That's correct, yeah. And so you remained here as an independent with this new party. And then you left, ran uh, independently in Alberta, in Bamfairdry. So then at that point you lost your seat, so you're no longer a sitting MP. You've come back to your original riding and have now accepted leadership for the Ontario party, Mm -hmm. uh, which was started in 2018. And I'd never heard of it before, but you've now accepted the leadership of it. And you're running provincially. Why have you done this political transitioning and what brought you back here to Ontario to run now with provincially? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, the the one thing we can all agree on is that we have a freedom fight on our hands. And, you know, in any major battle, the the fronts change, the, the, the points of attack may be different. You could be, you know, storming the beaches of Normandy one day. But you're not always fighting at the gates of Berlin to borrow a World War II, you know, sort of uh, analogy. So there's there's different things that need to be done. And, and going out to Alberta was the right thing to do at that time. Uh, we wanted to send a message to uh, the Conservatives by taking on a major, uh, you know, uh, a big wig in the Conservative uh, Party. And we did that. And we also were able to tour around Alberta and raise awareness for the types of things that we're fighting for. So that was absolutely the right thing to do. My party, uh, federal party, is still not approved by Elections Canada. So that's disappointing. But the fact is, is that there's always an opportunity to fight. And right now we have the next provincial election in the country is going to be in Ontario this coming June. And it's absolutely critical that we have, uh, uh, you know, that we're fighting on that front. So, you know, I'm still uh, in favor of fighting for all Canadians. The battle is right here in Ontario right now. And that's why I'm here to do this. And there's been a few other battles started by, you know, obviously uh, Jim and Belinda Carahalios, and they've started their their own provincial party, the New Blue Ontario. And then more recently, Randy Hillier with the Ontario First Party. What was it about their platform specifically or any other reason why you decided not to join in with them and, and build a task force, um, but rather come and do your own separate thing? Yeah, so it's clear that there is, it's clear that there's some divisions right now in sort of the, the, the freedom movement. And my hope is that the Ontario Party can be a place where all freedom fighters can gather, whether they're, you know, libertarian, socially conservative, uh, or just a, a freedom fighting patriot, whatever they want to call themselves. My hope is the Ontario Party can be that. I, of course, respect uh, Belinda, uh, Jim, uh, Randy, all of these people for their freedom fighting. And, uh, you know, politics can sometimes be complicated and uh, it's easy perhaps for someone on the outside to say, you know, why can't everybody just work together? Um, but unfortunately, there, there are some divisions there and I hope that this party could perhaps be a neutral point uh, where everybody can come together and work out their differences and work together. So that's my hope and I hope that I can help to facilitate that. I, I, w- I would also say that, you know, from the perspective of my own fight in this battle, uh, you know, it's very clear where I stand. I, I have a, you know, a perfect track record when it comes to voting against a lot of the socialist trends that we're seeing. And people know who I am and they know where I stand. And I can be counted on, I hope, to, to be a leader in this movement. Was there anything specifically, though, in their platforms that you disagreed with or why you decided not to join in on one of those parties? 
Yeah, so initially I had intended to, you know, uh, support the freedom movement here. I hadn't intended to be to be actually involved as the leader of a party. But it became clear uh, that various kind of movements and factions were not, um, you know, satisfied with the status quo. And they wanted, you know, they wanted a movement that was, you know, definitively pro-family, pro-freedom. Uh, and, and I was, you know, convinced to be involved in that. I would say that... Um, it is important for all of us to work together, and uh, I will be uh, trying as hard as I can to make that happen, uh, as challenging as that can be sometimes. Recently, MP, MPP rather, Rick Nichols endorsed you and the Ontario Party. Do you, how, what do you think about that? And also, do you think that there might be an opportunity there for Rick to, to join in and run? Well, that's a great question, and I was uh, honored to have Rick's uh, endorsement. He's been doing such a great job in the legislature, doing exactly what's what's needed right now. Um, I would be honored to have Rick run for the Ontario Party. Uh, obviously, I'm not uh, able to speak on Rick's behalf, but uh, it'll be exciting to see what what his decisions are as as we move forward. I would say, you know, this is a great example of my efforts to kind of reach out and work with people and be hopefully a place where all the freedom fighters can join in to fight in Ontario. Back in February. Yourself, Maxime Bernier, and Randy Hillier, you started this End the Lockdown Caucus. What happened to that? Well, the End the Lockdown Caucus uh, st- still exists. We haven't, we haven't met in, in some time. Um, but uh, the, the, the movement to sort of unite the um, elected representatives around the country that are opposed to COVID mandates uh, still exists. Of course, we're not dealing so much with lockdowns per se right now. It's more, you know, vaccine mandates and things like that. But the end of lockdowns caucus still exists. Um, as a founding member, uh, I, I did, uh, I was involved early on, but um, the, the organization of the caucus really fell more to Liberty Coalition Canada. And uh, so I, I was more a, a participant than an organizer. And I think that leads me into the last question that I have for you, Derek, which is that this Ontario party is kind of blurring the lines between libertarian and conservative. Um, so obviously freedom fighting is is one strong point of the platform. Can you share with our viewers any other uh, platform, key platform ideals or ideologies that you have as we learn, wait to learn more? Sure. So our platform is going to be developed uh, in consultation with our uh, uh, our candidates. And uh, so there'll be more that comes out on that. But I will say that for us, you know, we are, I have a a great track record when it comes to fighting for freedom, but that also includes fighting, uh, you know, against things such as the Kathleen Wynne sex ed curriculum, which Ford, you know, brought back in, Uh, you know, fighting against, you know, uh, uh, the the transgender craze and, and things like this. So I, you know, there's many fights where the freedom battle is on and we need to make sure we're fighting on all of them. That's a large undertaking and task to to hold in regards. So uh, good luck and please keep in touch if you have any more updates and we'll stay tuned to find out more about the Ontario party. Good. Thank Thanks so for much. joining me, Derek. Thank you, Tamara. All right. For Rebel News, I'm Tamara Ugolini. Have you had enough of these vaccine passports? I mean, I was done with them before they even got started. And if you want to help us fight them, then please head over to our special campaign at fightvaccinepassports.com. You can support our legal crowdfunding there because all of your donations go directly to the Canadian charity called the Democracy Fund. 
and they help individuals who have contacted us at Rebel News to litigate on their behalf at no charge to them. Head over to fightvaccinepassports.com and check it out. 